0: Welcome to Restored for Life with Pastor Ben Harris, the senior pastor at Restored Community Church, where God's perfect word restores imperfect people. Here's today's message from Pastor Ben. As I was growing up, one of my favorite books was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And uh, I read it uh, as a young child and then in high school I read it again uh, for a project. The movie rendition based on the book is really good. I've shown it to our our grandkids, and, and as, the, uh, as the tribe uh, grows in age, we'll show it to more of them as they become of age. Early on in the story, Lu- Lucy finds her way into a fantasy world called Narnia. She meets a fictional satyr called Tumnus. And while Lucy and Tumnus talk in his home cave, Tumnus explains that the reason it's so cold and dreary is because of the evil queen. Who is she? Lucy asks. Tumnus replies, why? It is she that has got all Narnia under her thumb. If she, it, It's she that makes it always winter, always winter and never Christmas. Think of that, he says. But there is good news in the story. All is not lost. Aslan, the lion who created Narnia and is really a picture of Jesus, returns to fight for the land and the people that he loves. Aslan returns to Narnia to set free the people who were living there by laying down his own life for them. It's a great story. I know many people for whom it seems that the world is cold and dreary, always winter and never Christmas. People for whom life seems to be cold, dark, and hopeless. But I also know that Jesus is the light of the world. We're going to read that again. He's already said it before. He will say it again. The next time he says it, a few weeks from now, he's going to point at his disciples and say, you are the light of the world. He's going home. He's going to leave the light in us, you and I. Here in John twelve forty six, Jesus said, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. In Narnia, when Aslan arrived, the snow began to melt. There were Christmas celebrations across the land. Winter turned into spring. Laughter and hope returned to Narnia. And when Jesus entered into humanity as a child and grew to take hold of his role as Savior of the world, hope was reborn. Shepherds celebrated Christmas, and wise men brought gifts from afar. Jesus brought the offer of forgiveness and a new life that leads to God himself. Still, most of the world will reject Jesus out of hand without any real consideration. I have conversations with people online and Facebook and other social media. They ask me questions occasionally, and sometimes they do it in person. And I love conversing with people. But one of the things I've realized is that the world depends upon their knowledge from a, a professor in college, or perhaps their buddy who has told them the way things are, and they just assume that's true. And I like to tell them, listen, this, isn't too, this is too important of a decision to allow someone else to tell you where you're going to spend eternity. It just is. Go research. It's, there, there's great, there are great answers out there for almost all the questions that I, I can think of. But some will consider this offer and believe and receive him as their Lord and Savior. For them, this life is as bad as it will ever get. For the one that rejects Christ, this world is as good as it's ever going to get. It's going to get a lot worse after they go out into eternity. But for us, for those who have traded in their sin for God's sanctification, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. The book of John began with this curious statement, John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, Scripture tells us. Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and yet they rejected him. In our chapter today, we read in verse 37, but although he had done so many signs before them, and we've, we've looked at these signs all along as we've gone through these 12 chapters We see that Jesus is constantly doing miracles, but the people just, they're just not buying it. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. A good number of people had come to believe in Jesus and follow him, but really, in the greater picture, Israel rejected their Messiah, and in spite of all the miracles he had performed, the vast majority had rejected him out of hand. Just as last week we saw the word faith used eight times in chapter eleven, we are going to see the word believe used eight times in chapter twelve. Today, let's look at Jesus's four response to belief, four responses to belief. Here's response number one, and if you like to take notes, and I encourage everybody to do that, you can flip over your bulletin and you can follow along with us. Response number one: Jesus responds. To Mary's belief. Jesus responds to Mary's belief. In our story last week, Jesus had returned to Bethany to raise his friend Lazarus from the grave. The town of Bethany where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the the infamous Lazarus, lived, is just a short two-mile walk to Jerusalem where the Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus. They were plotting his murder. But the Savior, knowing the exact time of his death was upon him, remained there in the home in spite of the danger it presented. Let's begin reading our passage, John chapter 12, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, of course she did, and, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a pound, a pound, that's 16 ounces, of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with this fragrant, fragrance of the oil. In the lobby when you came in, if your sniffer's working, you might have smelled, you might have detected something sweet in the air. And, and um, I stole uh, an ounce of, um, of Debbie's spikenard and then later found out it's 70 bucks. So enjoy it. On the way out, if you haven't smelled it yet, just take a deep breath at the front doors there and you'll smell the spikenard. It's an amazing odor. And this is what she put on Jesus, uh, or not only on his feet, but on his hair as well. So this would have been running throughout the house. Wherever Jesus walked, during these eight days, these next eight days before his resurrection, he would have smelled like spikenard. Verse 4, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. Wow, let's just get right to it. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said to him, "'Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always.'" Verse 9, "'Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead.'" But the chief priests plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. True to their personalities, we see Martha in the kitchen. She's making dinner, she's serving it to Jesus, while Mary and her brother sat next to him. Every time we see Mary in the scriptures, we see her three times. All three times, she's at the feet of Jesus. There's no exception. She's always sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you read the three accounts of Mary anointing with oil, um, her anointing found in Matthew, Mark, and John, you discover that she pours the oil over Jesus' head, and then she saves the last part for his feet, to anoint his feet. This Mary does not join the women who went to the tomb on Resurrection Sunday. Yeah, you know, do you, are you like me? Yeah, I've got to find out which Mary we're talking about here. You know, There's three of them. And they just say Mary. So you have to know the context and you have to know who's who. This isn't one of the Marys that goes to the tomb. She chose to anoint him before his excruciating death. She is giving him flowers before the funeral. In order that she might in he might enjoy the fragrance and the soothing effect. Now. Spikenard has an interesting effect, and they've been using it, for, obviously, for thousands and thousands of years. You put Spikenard on the back of your neck, and uh, just just a little dot on the back of your neck before you go to bed, and it relaxes you. It's soothing. It soothes your nerves. It's also a great treatment for skin, although uh, a very expensive one. Mary is taking one final moment before the cross to worship her Savior, and Jesus both accepts and defends this woman's actions. The alabaster jar of oil cost a year's wages, perhaps sixty to $70,000 today. And like King David said of his worship to God, Mary would not offer up to the Lord that which cost her nothing. What did Mary have? She had this very costly box of oil. And she went and got it. Now, what, did her father give this to her as an inheritance? We don't know where it came from. It's extremely expensive. Why she had it, we don't know. But probably this was going to be her retirement or how she lived on a daily basis. But she takes the whole thing and she pours it out on her Savior because he's worth it. He's worthy. As I said, the fragrance of the spikenard oil would have filled the house and been a reminder of Christ's costly sacrifice for all. Spikenard was only put on kings, or, or very, very wealthy people, obviously. Matthew and Mark tell us that her act of worship would be forever remembered, memorialized, really, for all to read. Matthew twenty six thirteen relays this information. Jesus says this right after um, she anoints him with oil. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever this gospel is preached or wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus is prophesying 2,000 years later. We're still talking about her. We're still talking about this moment. When Mary knelt at Jesus's feet, that position, she took on the role of a servant When she took her hair down in front of the men, she committed an act of great humility, for it violated Jewish law. Women were not to to put their hair down in front of random men or any other man than her husband. They kept their head covered. No, she takes it down in front of all these guys. Why? Because her pride is second to her worship. Unfortunately, however, Judas criticized her act of love and worship, and sadly, the other disciples went along with him. Be careful when you take up someone else's offenses or criticisms. They oftentimes will lead you away from God and the truth. It's interesting to note here that the disciples thought Judas was a godly man who loved the poor, but what they didn't know was that he was a thief, he was a liar. And soon he would become a traitor. Be careful, my friends. Who has your ears? Who are you listening to? Right after Jesus rebukes Judas here, it must have upset him. Matthew 26 reveals that this disciple, Judas, went out and began the negotiations of betraying Jesus with the Pharisees. Right after Jesus corrects him and says, leave her alone, she's worshiping me. Now you'll have the poor for a long time. You only get me for a short time. That must have not sat well with Judas because Matthew says immediately he stood up, walked out of the house, went to Jerusalem, and met with some Pharisees. Here the, bar- the betrayal began. While Mary worshiped, Judas schemed. What a difference. The ne- and the next here we read of Lazarus. He's a famous comeback kid now, he came back from the dead. Four days, not just, you know, not just four hours or four minutes like Jesus had done before. But four days later, he was raised. Lazarus isn't just dead. He's dead dead. And according to Jewish society practices and beliefs back then, you had to be dead three days before they knew you were dead. You're dead dead. You're not coming back. So what does Jesus do? He waits an extra day. He wants to make this well known that Lazarus is dead. And he raised him back to life scripture never records a single word that Lazarus ever spoke but then I think he lived in a house with two ladies (laughs) let's move on (laughs) but he obviously had an amazing testimony for Jesus why because he's out talking with people are you hey hey. are you that Lazarus that yeah that's me you were serious. You just weren't passed out. You were. No, I was dead. In fact, I was dead dead. I was four days dead. Really? Yeah. And then all of a sudden I'm in paradise laughing with the guys up there. And then I hear this voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. And I'm back in the grave again, trying to get out of my grave clothes. It's Jesus raised me from the dead. He's out there sharing the gospel before it was even cool to do so. And not only that, he made the Pharisees hitless. Got it. He's out there doing this. He's out there telling them about Jesus. Let's kill him too. we got to do away with these Christians before this gets out of hand. Pointing people to Jesus. Despite the disciples completely missing the point of Jesus' anointing, the Savior must have been encouraged and loved that night before Passion Week starts the next day. And it all began with Mary's belief in her Savior And Lazarus' testimony of what he had done in his life. Every year during Passion Week, I put on a daily reflection of what took place on each of these eight days. Passion Week starts on Sunday, the triumphal entry, and then it goes all the way through to the following Sunday. So there's actually eight days when uh, the eighth day, of course, is Resurrection Sunday. And I put it out there on Facebook, and each day I tell you what's happening on this day with Jesus. What is he doing? What's happening? And uh, you might want to uh, join our Facebook group uh, so that you can, you can follow along and see what's going on. I like to do that. So we're looking at Jesus' four responses to belief. First, we saw Mary, or Jesus responds to Mary's belief. And uh, response number two now, we see Jesus responds to the, to the Passover traveler's lack of belief. John now moves the story from an intimate dinner in Bethany with, with his close and personal friends to the triumphal entry of the King of Kings in Jerusalem. All four Gospels record this amazing event. This is the only public worship, by the way, that Jesus ever allowed in all of his ministry years. And as he said, if I try to stop them, the rocks will cry out. It would create an unrepairable divide between Jesus' followers and the religious leaders in Jerusalem. This was the beginning of the end, and it would ignite the flames that would conclude with Jesus and his crucifixion up on the hill of Golgotha. Let's continue our reading, verse twelve. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast now these are the these are the people that don't live here in Jerusalem. Every year perhaps a million people, they estimate, would come from all over the world to celebrate Passover. These you these are Jews from all you know, Hellenistic Jews that lived in Greece and other places, but they had to come to Passover. That was a requirement of them. So they would come, and this city was teeming with people. It was overflowing with people. And so here is this great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Which means, save now! Save us now! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, as he goes by on his donkey. They recognize him in this moment as Messiah, but not really. They don't don't get the big picture here. He's their Messiah that they've dreamed up, and that's why they're celebrating. They're not celebrating Jesus for who he is, but rather who they want him to be. Verse 14, Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, this is written in Zechariah nine, 9 uh, prophesied uh, 600, over 600 years before this, uh, when Zechariah would write this, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, and they're watching this all happen. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Verse 17, Therefore the people who were with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason the people also met with him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him the exact opposite of what they they wanted to kill him they wanted to convict him they didn't want him out there you know being messiah and telling them that the king has come they would lose their power their influence and that wasn't going to happen if they could make it can you imagine being a visitor though from out of town and coming in to the passover celebrating the passover in jerusalem and getting to witness one of the greatest events prophesied over 600 years previously to this. It's the greatest event in all of human history. The Jews believed that they were viewing their Messiah's arrival, and that he would now conquer and overthrow the Roman occupation that had been going on for just over 300 years now. They believed that's what Messiah, this is the Messiah they wanted. That's not why Jesus came. He didn't come to, to, for as a political solution. He came to do away with sin, something far more important. The Roman occupiers must have laughed that day. Jesus, save us, king of kings. And they're laughing. Go, okay, That's a king. He's dressed like that. He's riding on a don- their king rides on a donkey. Isn't this funny? See, a Roman conqueror, a general coming back from a great war, would never... He would have ne- it never occurred to him to ride a donkey. How low is that? No, he'd be riding a white charger, a stallion, uh, ornate, you know, gold and silver all over. He'd come in large and in charge. Pride, you know, reeking of pride. How sad that the one who flung the stars into heaven the one who crafted the seas and the mountains, the very person who breathed life into the first man was riding right by them, and they missed the arrival of the greatest person that will ever grace this planet. And not only the Romans missed Jesus, the travelers to the Passover missed him as well. They weren't interested in being saved from their sins. That never occurred to them. They didn't believe he was God. They only saw him as this miracle worker. And they wanted him to be this conquering hero that they had made up. Sometimes we Christians struggle with this a little bit as well. Listen, I can tell you, no politician is going to save us. Not going to happen. Laws will not save us. The most powerful military in the world cannot save us. Only believing in and confessing Jesus as your Lord and Savior will save you both now and in the world to come. While the Passover travelers celebrated and cheered, Jesus knew in their hearts that they weren't with him. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was on their minds. What they were looking for was their own Messiah. And these same people that cried out, Lord, save us would be crying out, crucify him, crucify him, five days later. Oh, they wanted a savior. They wanted this general that would be brilliant in war and powerful to defeat Rome. And they rejected the Messiah, and they just kept waiting for their own Messiah to come. He would arrive on the scene, let's see, 30, probably 35, 36 years later, 70 A.D., he would arrive on the scene, a man, a mere mortal, He would gather people, he would say all the things they wanted to say, and he would gather enough men to overthrow the Roman occupiers there in Jerusalem. Of course, there was only, you know, 30, 40, 50 men there. They were like a police force, really. And so they were easy to overthrow and and kill. They defeated them. And then Israel celebrated as if they had just thrown off the Roman yoke forgetting the 250,000 soldiers in Rome. (laughs) Caesar didn't take kindly to this. And a year later, he marched his army. And they came down from the north, and they came right into Jerusalem, and they taught the world a lesson. This is what happens when you overthrow and you rebel. And boy, did they ever massacre the people. It was brutal. So they missed Jesus, the real Messiah. And as Jesus approached the city, Luke 19 reveals This part of the story, verse 41. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. See, peace can't be found in a politician. It can't be found in a law. It can't be found in a nation. It can't be found anywhere but in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going, I'm here, and you've missed me. You completely missed me. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you. And they did. They built a wall around Jerusalem. They didn't want to just conquer Jerusalem. They wanted to punish it severely. No one was allowed to leave. They built a wall around Jerusalem and said, you're dead, every last one of you. And they just swept in and devastated the people. Restored for Life is a radio ministry brought to you by Restored Community Church. Visit restoredcommunitychurch.org to learn more about Pastor Ben Harris and for service times. Join Pastor Ben next time as we set out on a journey to discover the authentic life as Christ followers through obedience to His Word.